Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Unlike the other leading pop music crooners of the 1950s and 60s, Nat King Cole started out as a working musician, a pianist, composer, arranger, and band leader who played in small clubs in Chicago. At the suggestion of a fan, he sometimes added vocals, and from the late 1930s through 1943, Cole participated in, among other things, a Decca label sextet, a big band, and he played piano in nightclubs fronting small groups that included his long-lasting piano trio with Oscar Moore on guitar, Wesley Prince, later Johnny Miller on bass. That's until Capitol Records signed him to a huge contract as a singer. To celebrate the centennial year of his birth, producers Zev Feldman and George Kleben and journalist Will Friedwald have assembled a full collection of Nat Cole's recorded material from those early years called Hittin' the Ramp. It's from Renaissance Records and brings Zev Feldman and Will Friedwald to our show now to discuss this fascinating part of jazz history. Hello. Great to be with you. Now, it's Zev, an honor, sir. It's an honor. Zev, you've been uh, given the nickname the Jazz Detective. How, is that how this project got started? You in doing some way, detective work? In some ways it is. I'm very fortunate. I, I spend a lot of my days traversing the globe, finding recordings that have never been issued before. And in the case of Nat King Cole, uh, my good friend Will Friedwald and I were having a conversation, I believe, in uh, March of 2018 about the upcoming centenary. And I remember we were having another conversation. He said, you know, I, I got something I think you might be interested in. And Will started telling me the story about these recordings and how a lot of them were in were spread out all over the place. And we started talking about the crux of this project and putting it together and really a mission. And Will, you talk, you write that at the height of his fame in the 1950s and 60s, although he occasionally played piano, Nat King Cole was primarily known as a popular singer, the biggest selling artist of his generation. No that way. is, in fact, true. More uh, than Frank Sinatra? Well, here's the story. I, I, I actually, I, I'm doing a, uh, a new book on that coming out from Oxford University Press. Uh, actually, it's, people can buy it already now on Amazon. It's already out there for pre-order uh, called Straighten Up and Fly Right. And I, I did research this. If in the years between Bing Crosby and Elvis Presley, uh, especially in the 1950s after Nature Boy and Mona Lisa, if you look at the singles charts, and all this stuff is fairly well documented, every year you see that, uh, say, Sinatra would have had uh, six or seven hits, you know, notable singles or whatever. Uh, Perry Como mm -hmm. was a huge, was huge, huge star. He maybe had eight or nine hits. Bing Crosby. But in those, Bing Crosby, right? But in, in all those years uh, leading up to Elvis, Nat Cole would have 10 or 12 hits. And he consistently outsold every other male singer, probably every other female singer, too, until the big rock and roll thing happened and Elvis kind of swept everybody away. But literally, he was the most popular singer in between Bing and Elvis. Just, but, just but with, are, are you hit make, for hit. Yeah. But are you uh, making the case with these recordings that he was a great jazz pianist? In, in the oh, yes. Earl Father Hines, Artatum, and then a bridge to people like Oscar Peterson exactly. and Ahmad Jamal? People ask me, well, obviously... People ask me if Nat is one of my favorite musicians. The, the answer is he's two of my favorite performers <laughs> because he's equally great as a singer uh, and as a piano player. And, uh, well, a quick story. Uh, Norman Grant told the story that he was at a party in Los Angeles around 1940 uh, when Art Tatum and Count Basie were both in Los Angeles. Of course, Nat lived there. And um, this woman had a great piano, really nice uh, grand piano, and she invited notable 
jazz pianist to come and play on her instrument, so to speak. And um, the whole evening was Art Tatum running to the piano, mm. knocking everybody out. And then Nat, who was only like 21 years old, absolutely fearless. He wasn't even afraid of Art Tatum, who, as you know, was Godzilla of the piano. If you didn't, you know, Maybe he would just the greatest step on you. Right, exactly. But as soon as Art got tired, Nat would run up there, and then he would play for a half hour until Art got you know, his strength back, and then Art would play. And the whole evening was Nat Art, Nat Art. And Norman and Count Basie are sitting there <laughs> watching this, and Norman says to Bill Basie, aren't you going to play? And he said, what, after Nat Cole and Art Tatum? I would rather die first. Wow. And that shows you the esteem to which other uh, piano players held Nat Cole even before he was well-known in the jazz community or the black community and way before he was well-known uh, in, in the larger world of mainstream pop music. He was one, just an absolute monster at the piano. One reviewer uh, wrote that this collection fills an important gap in the recorded history of jazz. Uh, it's seven CDs comprising 183 tracks recorded between 1936 and 43. But why have you called it Hitting the Ramp? Well, I think that this really speaks to that time where Nat's career was greatly accelerating. He was getting ready to get on that expressway, if you will. And this is all those recordings that are leading up to that moment in 1943. It's, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a <laughs> metaphor, you might say. Is this everything? Uh, we're, I'm assuming it's certainly everything some of them were he did, scarce. Everything as a leader, a couple of sidemen things eluded us legally. But it's certainly everything he did where it's his group and the piano is, is foremost. Uh, some of these songs have, um, many of them, faded into oblivion. But others, <laughs> like Straighten Up and Fly Right, Sweet Lorraine, Mona Lisa, uh, brought him fame and became jazz standards. Certainly true. Um, one of the points I make in the book, I think also in the, in the booklet to uh, the Residence Box, is uh, one of the things that distinguished Nat from other musicians, and even from other singers, was because he had been a songwriter himself, and he wrote uh, Straighten Up and Fly Right, even though he did not write the bulk of his songs, but that experience uh, and the fact that he was such a great musician, he knew what went into a song, and he really had a sixth sense of what songs would become uh, loved by the public and what would not. And I think it's even, as much as I adore Frank Sinatra, I think it was even stronger than Sinatra. He had a much stronger hit record of finding new songs that nobody had ever heard before and making them into standards, making them into hits. Although looking at the credits, uh, he obviously wrote a number of the the uh, the songs that were recorded originally by him and by his he brother's group. He certainly did. He certainly uh, did. Uh, so... Um, uh, his his birth name was Nathaniel Adams Coles with an S at the end, uh, and but his brother was already calling himself Eddie Cole, and he didn't he make his recording debut July twenty eighth nineteen thirty six playing piano in with Eddie's band. Yes, and by the time they had that uh, uh, session, they had already decided on Cole with no S as the last name. The interesting thing about that Decca session, which was done for Decca's race label, was that this really was Nat's band. He put it together while his big brother, who was 11 years older, uh, no, 10 years older, was touring the world, uh, working mainly with Noble Sissel on his orchestra. Mm -hmm. And when Eddie saw all the great things that Nat was doing in Chicago, and he had already played in like Paris, 
London, Germany. Uh, when he saw what Nat was achieving back in Chicago, he decided to get off the road and work with his brother again. So he joined the band, and they put Eddie's name on the record. Because Eddie, Eddie Cole's right, Solid Swingers. Eddie, Eddie <laughs> Cole's Solid Swingers. And they put Eddie's name, they made Eddie the leader on, on the record date because he was known also to Decca Records for his work with Noble Sissel. But he was a bigger name then, even though it was really Nat's band. And Nat wrote all four tunes, and he wrote all the arrangements. And, and how old was he at the time? Oh, at that point he was 17. So he dropped out of high school? He, at the age of 15, he was getting so much work uh, that he, yes, he had to drop out of high school to, to uh, you know, get into the world of playing, to become a professional musician, yeah. Interestingly, uh, his brother Eddie handled the vocals. Uh, let's listen to a track from that time. It's called Swingin' at the Panama, which was recorded July 28, 1936. Nat King Cole the composer. A track from uh, Nat King Cole's first recorded date, uh, 
Yeah, that was the club they were playing in Chicago. It was the, the Panama, Panama Cafe called Stompin' at the Panama? They, they recorded four tracks, and he, uh, he, you say he was seventeen years old. Seventeen years. It was a very good boy. Year. He had chops. Some ch- Earl Father Hines was his hero, as you could tell. I mean, that was very, very, very father, very Heinzy. So, what led him to move to Los Angeles in nineteen thirty-eight? He was he was just eighteen years old at the time. It's it's kind of an epic story, and Nat always relished telling it. It's part of his personal mythology. I mentioned that his brother had played bass for Noble Sissel, and in addition to being a band leader, of course, those of us who saw uh, the new sort of production of Shuffle Along a few years ago also will know uh, Noble Sissel as a pioneering uh, composer, African-American composer of musical theater. And the biggest hit in the 1920s had been Shuffle Along, an all-black review. Uh, not a review, but an all-black uh, musical comedy. And in 1937, 36, they uh, wanted to stage a new production of it. Noble Sissel wasn't involved, but he was obviously the connection. Um, Flournoy Miller, another one of the collaborators, uh, wanted a band, and Noble Sissel recommended his bass player, Eddie, and uh, Eddie's whiz kid brother, Nat, to be the band leaders for this new production of Shuffle Along, which was uh, a, a traveling production. It started off in Chicago, then gradually they got to Los Angeles, and the story that Nat always told was that when they got to Los Angeles, somebody made some, uh, and these are, these are Nat's exact words, some light-footed rascal mm-hmm. made off with the box office, and they were stranded. And Nat decided to stay in L.A. But I have a feeling that because, um, you know, Nat's parents had come up, the, the, Cole, the Coles, the Reverend Coles and his wife Perlina, they had come up from Montgomery, Alabama uh, to Chicago when Nat was just a kid. And I have a feeling that Nat saw uh, travel and the idea of establishing yourself in a new place as like a good thing as his parents had done. And when uh, he and his wife got stranded in Los Angeles, he decided to stay there and you know, see what he could see, you know? And he formed uh, a new trio with guitarist Oscar Moore and bassist Wesley Prince. Uh, wasn't it supposed to be a quartet? Boy, I have, I, like I say, I, I, for this book, I have tried to unravel exactly what happened. But my latest theory, maybe I'll find some new information next week that will contradict this. But um, when he, he uh, as, as uh, Nick talks about in the uh, uh, booklet, uh, we have a whole biography of Oscar Moore, which is quite wonderful. But um, when he met Oscar, he knew that this was his partner. He knew that this was going to be his collaborator. And then Lionel Hampton recommended a bass. Lionel Hampton had his own band, and then he gave it up to work with Benny Goodman, and he said, you ought to hire my bass player. And this was Wesley Prince. And Wesley Prince said something to Nat Cole when they first met that just blew his mind. And then Nat was like, why didn't I ever think of that? He mentioned the old fairy tale about old King Cole. Mm-hmm. So that's and, how we got And Nat got that inspiration. And even though there's all kinds of theories, uh, they wanted a drummer, but there wasn't enough room. They wanted a drummer, but Lee Young, the drummer they wanted, didn't show up. There's all kinds of stories. My personal theory now is that when Wesley Prince gave him this brainstorm about old King Cole and his Fiddlers 3, he said, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to use that as my branding. Of course, they didn't use that word then. And I'm going to make this a trio. So that's my personal theory is that he always wanted it to be a trio at that point. Well, because was he a merry old soul? <laughs> <laughs> he was a young kid. Yes. He was a merry young soul, certainly. And he took advantage of that, uh, like I say, that branding for the rest of his life. He exploited the King Cole nursery rhyme as much as he could. And he was really very, very prescient about that, you know? 
My guests on London Open at Large today on WBAI New York 99.5 FM are Will Friedwald and Zev Feldman, and we are talking about uh, recordings from a huge set of seven discs called Hitting the Ramp, the early years, 1938, 30, I mean 1936, 1943, uh, of uh, Nat King Cole, uh, released by Resonance Records. Let's listen to something that the trio recorded in September 1938. Their version, uh, the reason why I picked this is because... Uh, Throughout his career, he did a quite a few novelty. That's very tunes, true. And I thought playing the Blue Danube, <laughs> right, was definitely a an odd choice. Well, it's uh, it's famously a waltz, and they play it in four four time, which is <laughs> yeah. a hell of a way to play a waltz, if you ask me. Let's listen to it. Incredible, right? Ama- yeah. He was 18 years old. Yeah. <laughs> he had. He had chops. Chops yeah. up the wazoo, maybe, as we maybe would say. Maybe not our Tatum or Teddy Wilson. We say wazoo on the air? Yes, know. you can say wazoo. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the rest of the group was wonderful. Uh, Oscar Moore on bass, Wesley Prince on guitar. Oscar's incredible. Yeah. 
And they say, how if, long oh, did by they the way, together? I know we're 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 uh, we're talking about Nat as one of the great piano players of all of all time. But guitar jazz enthusiasts also have to purchase this package, don't you think? Uh, so? I totally agree with you. I think this is an amazing document. Uh, you know, it speaks to their partnership too, and and obviously, you they know, used to sing together as well. That's true. I'm sorry, I, but I no, but but the that. fact is that the collaboration between these two and it's such a it represents such a girth of of Oscar Moore's work in this period. We have to look at these with in both perspectives for sure. Uh, something that you notice immediately is the way that he comped for the other musicians in his trio, and then later for some of the the jazz greats, Lester Young, Harry Sweets Edison, Dexter Gordon, when he was just starting out. Um, now who was buying these records well the bulk of this particular package this is from uh most of it's from the, like the depth of the depression and uh the interesting thing about uh you, you talk about not being in california there are very few uh this is when there was a movie industry in california but absolutely no music industry to speak of not like today and uh but so there weren't a lot of record companies out there, and, and, and even the majors didn't really have – weren't really aggressively recording their own artists out in Hollywood. But That all changed after the war. Right, exactly. But what uh, – as early as the early 30s, mid-30s, all these transcription companies – and I'll explain what that is – were popping up in Los Angeles and even San Francisco where McGregor was originally based. And uh, to explain what that was – uh, during the golden age of live radio or the golden age of you know old-time radio, um, of course, most of the music and most of the comedy and drama were all done live. But there still was this sort of secondary market for pre-recorded music to use in the non-prime time slots or to use when a ball game got rained out or whenever they needed some – uh, something to, to throw on the air quickly. They didn't just have DJs play records? This was released? at a time, now it shows you how, uh, and Zev will bear me out on this, that attitudes change. This was at a time when the heads of the, uh, the, the musicians' locals thought that playing records on the air, and also the record companies too, they thought that if people are going to hear records on the air, they're not going to buy them. And that, of course, is... It's the total opposite of what we have believed ever since, you know, right. the post-war era. So um, there was – they were not allowed to gener – they generally were, were not playing regular commercial records on the air, but they were playing special tracks that were made just for that purpose. And there was a very healthy business of about nine or ten uh, transcription companies that would make music just to be played – you know, canned music just to be played on the air. And they loved the King Cold Trio because they could go in in two hours and give them 30 tracks in two hours that would, were all usable. They had these huge played repertoire. on stations that were aimed at African Americans? Or they were played all over. We uh -huh. don't – in fact, that's, that's one of the areas where more research has to be done. But there was not a lot of black radio then, let's yeah. face it, nor a lot of great representation of black artists on the air. These were played everywhere, and I think it's it's notable that uh, from the beginning, even though he first became a star in, in, in black showbiz, but he always had a white audience from the beginning. And the first clubs he played in, uh, like the Swanee Inn, um, were not exclusively all black clubs. He always played to an integrated audience from, from day one. And he was in uh, between 39 and 41. The trio also made recordings with various vocal groups. Uh, and then they signed with Decca, uh, Milt Gabler. That's right, J. Mayo Williams. Um, 
In fact, I, I, I knew Milton. I talked to him about Nat Cole, and he said what he loved, uh, you know, he loved the trio, and he also loved that he would throw these jam sessions in New York around 40, 41, when Nat first came to New York, and Nat would be the first guy to come and play for everybody. He just loved the way that Nat would, you know, play on these jam sessions. And I would, and he wished that he had a recording of them. He never never did get to make a rec- recording of those. So, but he, Gabler produced tracks like Hit the Jive Jack, which uh, That's right. became classics. And in 42, Norman Grants comes in into the the picture the uh, uh, the famous Norman Grants of of um, the Philharmonic jazz at the Philharmonic concerts uh, w- he arranged for uh, Nat to record with Lester Young that's right well the story goes and Ze- and again Zev knows all this um, <laughs> well Zev you can jump in anytime you I want. will absolutely uh, Norman Norman actually had – I'm not quite sure why, but he had two different – he got drafted twice. For some reason, he was in the Army, then they released him, then they called him back. And during that time, when he was between uh-huh. hitches, he went into uh, to hear Nat at Kelly Stables just by accident. He never had no idea who Nat was. And he fell in love with Nat's piano playing. And then when they were both on in California a few months later, they got together – and they became really close friends. I think Nat uh, Norman was the – they both were their best – the first close friends they had in the uh, the other race, so to speak. Uh, he was Nat's first white friend, and Nat was his first really close black friend. And they just were in love with the idea of promoting jam sessions and, and bringing the jam session to the general public in a way that had never been before. And they started the series at, at uh, the club where Nat was working, the 331 Club – and it became they the, the union said they had to take sunday uh sunday nights off so nat said well instead of you know we don't have the trio but let's do these jam sessions cuz you know all these bands were coming into town when count basie would play they would get lester young uh when louis armstrong came through town they would get dexter gordon so they got all the great musicians that were coming through town and Nat uh, put these sessions together, and Norman said for the rest of his life, Nat was the one who got me into the jazz business. And they did, recorded, he recorded wonderful uh, versions of Indiana. I can't get yes, started. Yes, that is such two. a great record. Yeah. And Body and Soul Amazing. With, with Lester Young. Uh, so we have The King with the Prez. That's right. And um, let's listen to one of those tracks. Uh, uh, Lester Young, I immediately thought, we have to hear Body and Soul. Thank you. 
Listening to the Leonard Lopez at Large show on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, we're talking about Nat King Cole uh, in the early years before he became a major superstar with Zev Feldman and Will Friedland. Friedwald, I'm so Close sorry. Enough. Friedwald, Close enough. Uh, Close and, enough and, for jazz. And, and uh, that is such an incredible track. I'm amazed that it hasn't been available before or has it been around is it something it's, i just didn't know about it's just not uh, easy to find although it's it's it, it it has been issued before but you couldn't you know just procure it instantly and and as as Zev well knows um of course lester had a famous uh partnership with count basie and he had a long history with teddy wilson another one of the great piano players but i think and maybe this is my radical minority opinion that the all-time most perfect partner at the piano for lester young was nat cole i mean Nat just got him nat grew up listening to uh lester young and count basie and he just loved lester and he was a close friend of uh um lester's kid brother lee young was one of Nat's best friends, and he wound up uh, playing drums for him for many years, and he became Nat's conductor for a while. But he just absolutely worshipped Lester Young, and it was such an honor for him to play with Lester. And they did that session set up by Norman, and then they did another session uh, in 1946 that's even more legendary, where it's the trio with uh, Nat King Cole, Lester Young, and Buddy Rich, just Mm. piano, piano, tenor saxophone, and drums, and those are amazing records, too. So that was the king, the president, and God all together. (laughs) And and recording under a pseudonym as well. That's right. Um, Was that the Shorty Nadine or I Guy? I Guy. Should I be surprised that there were no vocals on any of those tracks? But Lester Young, of course, is so lyrical. Uh, he, uh, he, you don't need a singer. Well, uh, not, Lester, as Lester, as you know, Lester always said, "I can't play a song until I know the words," and I think that was Nat's philosophy too. When Nat plays a melody, you can always hear the lyric. The lyric is always paramount in everything he does. And we were lucky, also. I got to say, our good friends at Universal Music Group. When you're talking about the gathering of these tracks, because they were in a variety of different places, all over the gamut, and we were able to license those recordings for this box set. We've done all the gathering for you here in curating and it's putting true. it together. Did you have to remaster any of them? Oh, well, the, we remastered all of it. We That's did. Matt. We got to give Matt a shout Matt out. Matt Luthens is just a really inc- impressive gentleman who's he's a part of this team uh, that worked on this box set. He's one of our co-producers, um, as is a researcher Jordan Taylor and also Seth Berg, who works for South Bay Entertainment, and George Clayman and myself. This was really an incredible team effort, really pulling this stuff together. And you know, you were asking about the jazz detective earlier. You know, so often at the resonance labels, a lot of these projects are solely George Clayman and I and Zach Shelby Cisco, our production manager, driving the car. This project was really a team-building exercise, and we all played a part, but when you want to talk about that sound, Matt Luthens just did a wonderful job. He Truly, is, truly. He's an engineer. He works for Coherent Audio with the great Kevin Gray, and this guy was on airplanes. He was traveling the world, tracking down the, the best optimum versions and recordings and way, you know, ways that we could improve the sound. This is really the definitive version. 
After Grant's arranged for those dates with Leslie Young, he got him with Dexter Gordon. How old was Dexter Gordon at the time? And Harry Sweets Edison. Oh, he was still. This is Dexter's really his first small group date. And the funny thing is, if if you were not to tell anybody it was Dexter and put it on a blindfold test, I think everybody would say, well, that's Lester Young. <laughs> he sounds so much like Lester. Everybody sounded like everybody. Lester at that yeah. time if they didn't yeah. sound like Coleman Hawkins. Uh, did these records sell well? Well, the funny thing is that to make a four-minute record in those days was so out of the ordinary that it had to be issued through very unusual channels, if at all. And most of these didn't come out. They did come out in the 78 era, but it wasn't until many, many years later that they got to be appreciated. Just because you couldn't you couldn't sell a four-minute jam session on a 78 record. It just was impossible. So they reflect what was going on in the music business at the time with, with radio play and jukeboxes. Um, uh, some of the material recorded... Totally with jukeboxes in mind? That's right. There's all kinds of variations, and, and we're learning so much more about this period. Uh, Nat did, along with, he, he made records that were only meant to be played on the radio, and he also made records that were only meant to be used in jukeboxes. And even weirder, um, there was a special, there was a company that tried making a new kind of jukeboxes that were only for background music in restaurants. <laughs> and they made these really unusual uh, recordings. And if Matt were here, he could give you the technical details. But they were the, 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 the technology was such that the start of the record plays at a different speed than the end of the record. And so... Only, only somebody who really, really knows, you know, their onions like Matt could have figured out how to properly get those recordings to play at the correct speed. I mean, speed they weren't all, all the at 78 RPM. No, they weren't. This was they, the Cinematone. This was the Cinematone. Penny Phono jukebox. Penny Phono. There's a whole story here. And, and this is something that's never been documented any, anywhere. And it's amazing that we even found out that these things exist. And just to find, just to find one of these tracks is, is, is mind-boggling. And the fact that Matt got it to sound like something is, is just a, a testament to the fact that he knows what he's doing. The next thing uh, I want to play is was recorded a live performance at the three three thirty three three thirty one club, club right. which you mentioned earlier, uh, and then uh, was later broadcast on the radio. What we're going to hear uh, going to move to the outskirts of town. Yes. Um, which which has some really incredible lyrics. Were those the original lyrics? I believe so. It was a hit for Louis Jordan. Mm -hmm. and so then, it was meant to be a comedy. Yes. So. Oh yeah. It's a funny number. It's a funny number. Okay, well, let's listen to it. Mutual again brings you music by the famed King Cole Trio from the 331 Club in Los Angeles, California. Music with swing and jive and the solid stuff up and coming with little brother King Cole in the outfit. I'm gonna move Way on the outskirts of town I'm gonna move Way on the outskirts of town I don't want nobody Who always hanging around I'm gonna tell you baby gonna move away from here I don't want no ice man 
Gonna get me a Frigidaire when we move Way on outskirts town I don't want nobody Who always hanging round I'm gonna bring my own groceries Bring them every day That'll stop that grocery boy And keep him away when we move Way on outskirts town I don't want nobody Who always hanging round I'm gonna bring my own groceries Bring them every day That'll stop that grocery boy And keep him away when we move Way on outskirts town I don't want nobody Who always hanging round King Roll Trio recorded live at the 331 Club. Uh, I'm going to move to the outskirts of time, town playing the blues. Yeah, that's it. I mean, Nat's, as I mentioned, Nat's hero was Earl Father Hines. But I think that one area where Nat quickly outclassed Hines, as great as he was, was he was a much stronger blues player. I think um, he's just as good... Uh, uh, as any of, like, say, the Kansas City guys, like uh, Pete Johnson, mm-hmm. Joe Turner, um, uh, all, so all those amazing musicians. So why do you think he doesn't get that kind of credit, simply because he became so because important he became, uh, pop singer? It's just right. Um, every time Nat did something, he was always looking to the future, and he himself had no interest in his past. As soon as the next thing came out, he was looking for the thing after Some that. Some people might have called him a sellout. Well, he saw the opportunity to make a lot of money, and... He took it. Yeah, but the thing was, it's not like uh, he was always interested in, 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 in something new, and he never wanted to repeat himself. And I think the main reason that he switched, and this is another theory that I develop in the book, um, in 1947, uh, oh, actually, you were asking me when we were listening to the Lester Young session if Oscar was on it, and I said no, 
Oscar just didn't show up. Nat wanted him for the date, but Oscar was a no-show. And Red Calendar later said they waited around for an hour. And then when Oscar never showed up, they did the date without him. Oscar was starting to get tired of the road, and he quit completely in 1947. And I think at that point, Nat did put together a new trio, mm-hmm. which was quite good. It was a really wonderful group. This had group, guitar on it. Was that Oscar right. Moore? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oscar was there until 47. Mm-hmm. But after Oscar quit, he found Irving Ashby, who was another great mm-hmm. guitar player. But I think the joy of it had gone out for Nat without Oscar there. And if, an Oscar, if Oscar had wanted to stay with him for the rest of his life, my personal theory is he never would have broken up the trio. But since Oscar's departure meant a new trio and another trio beyond that, I think that's when he started to think, well, you know, especially because his vocals were becoming so popular that he wanted to do the new thing rather than just repeating himself with another trio. And I don't think it was just a matter of wanting to make money, but... I do think that the idea that he could be the first, and he truly was the first African-American pop music superstar, and that did appeal to him. And I do think that he he not only viewed it in terms of what it could do for him, well, but what it could do for the whole race. There was Louis race. Armstrong. There were some others. But, but he was the, well, for yeah. one thing, he was the first solo singer to have a number one hit yeah. with For Sentimental Reasons in 1946. The only sort of notable black hits before that were vocal groups like the Ink Spots and the Mills Brothers. And yeah, there were black stars, but he was really the first guy to sing love songs, the first guy uh, to go in all kinds of places where black musicians were not allowed to go before him. And I want to play another track from this period that kind of indicative of some of the things you said. It's called All For You. When you raise your eyes and make believe All the stars come out and paint a world of blue There's my heart right up your sleeve Waiting all for you When you smile on me The world is mine and the dreams I dream I know we'll all come true Every care becomes divine Waiting on for you My heart is beating to the old refrain When I'm alone with you My heart's repeating I'm in love again can't we hold a rendezvous? You, the dreams I dream, the song I sing, you're the stars and moon, and nearly everything. Life would be a symphony, waiting all for.
heart is beating to the old refrain When I'm alone with you My heart's repeating I'm in love again Can't we hold a rendezvous In the dreams I dream song I sing, you're the stars and moon, and nearly everything, life would be a symphony, living all Uh, that's, I guess, the Nat King Cole that uh, we remember from this period, a wonderful singer of ballads. Uh, now, uh, this th- this box set also has wonderful photographs and fabulous liner notes, um, and it's a lot of music. Maybe that's why it's not <laughs> inexpensive. Uh, how many how many CDs? Seven. This CDs? is seven CDs. We also have a ten LP counterpart. It's eight and a half hours of music. It's a over a it's a hundred and eighty three tracks, wow. and it is you know Resonance has been very fortunate to be making a name for ourselves these days because we really believe in physical product despite being in this age of streaming and that's important too, but we've done a lot of ambitious endeavors and this really tops the list for us this Mm -hmm. is the most ambitious release that we've ever done just to give you an idea though uh will writes the main essay and it's just uh, really it's wonderful to read will's words talking in depth about these recordings and the labels but uh, guitarist nick rossi who we were just speaking of before wrote a wonderful essay about oscar moore we have quotes from and and conversations and quotes uh, essays with johnny mathis tony bennett Quincy Jones, Nat's brother, Freddie Cole, Harry Belafonte, John Pizzarelli, and many more. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, again, talking about the sources, we worked with all sorts of Quincy institutions. Quincy Jones, you left out Quincy. Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, Quincy Jones is in there, too. And, uh, you know, we worked with a lot of different sources, the Institute of Jazz Studies here at Rutgers University, the Library of Congress, trying to get these definitive r- recordings, the sources. And also, might I add, something we didn't talk about before in some cases even the pitch and the speed had been mm-hmm. off right. on these previous versions that had been available before so this is really the definitive collection but one other thing Leonard I have to say too very passionate about this at resonance we are very artist friendly many of the recordings I'd say a great majority of the recordings in this box set for many years have been available in a wide variety of sources without the family's participation and being compensated. And I'm really happy to say oh, that so you're the paying family, royalties. Absolutely. And they are a part Good. of they are a participant in this project uh, with us. And I want to thank Seth Berg from South Bay Entertainment for making this endeavor possible. And us. I will say, uh, if you know my work, I have worked with, uh, done a bunch of projects for Mosaic Records. I've worked with the legendary Hair Bear, Richard Weitz of Bear Family Records, and they're all great labels. And I've been around the block a few times, but I have, I could say this unequivocally, nobody else could have done the job 
that uh, Team Z did, Zach, Zev, George, <laughs> nobody else could have put together such a definitive compilation. Um, jo- Jordan and I, and especially Matt, and like like, like Zev mentioned, uh, Matt was flying all over the world to look in basements trying to find these rare tracks, and nobody else would have said, yeah, go with it. Anything you can find, if it's good, we're going to put it in. Nobody else would have done that. We're pretty much out of time, and I do want to just do a quick wrap-up of what happened the following these years. He uh, made some records for Capitol, and they signed him, and that changed everything. He became a big star. He sang at President Kennedy's presidential inaugural gala in 1961. But there was not everything was wonderful when he bought a house in uh, Hancock Park neighborhood in, in L.A., the uh, local property owners association told him that they didn't want any undesirables moving into the neighborhood. And he said, neither do I. <laughs> and if I see anybody undesirable coming in here, I'll be the first to complain. But he was also physically assaulted uh, on stage in, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he when he he had a radio show for a while, but when he was when he went to TV, um, I've heard that he had a hard time sometimes getting. NBC had a hard time selling sponsors, selling ads. It's because, all true. It's all true. Uh, because they were worried about the South. Uh, and then there is a story that near the end of his life, he telephoned Capitol Records, the record company that he had had been kind of constructed on his hits, and uh, the, he heard this message: "Hi, this is Capitol, home of the Beatles." <laughs> it's all true. Uh, Nat really was, you know, Capitol Records was the house that Nat built. And then he died at 45. 45 years old. He was a tobacco addict. He was a chain smoker for 30 years. And it's a, it's, it's a wonder that it didn't kill him earlier, actually. His pallbearers included Bobby Kennedy, Count Basie, Sammy Davis Jr., Johnny Mathis, Jimmy Durante, Frankie Lane. So a wide range. Listen, thank you both so much for being on our show. Will Friedwald and Zev Feldman, we've been talking about... This incredible box set called Hitting the Ramp, the early years, 1936-1943, of Nat King Cole on Resonance Records. Uh, I don't know if we have uh, enough time to get through the whole um, uh, track, um, Hit That Jive Jack, but let's try to play a little bit of it from 1943. Fifteen minutes past eight o'clock at KGER Long Beach as we continue our transcribed presentation of the King Cole Trio. with money the boys who saw us all laugh but now it's not so funny they're all gone with the draft i was the carry grand who couldn't be that neat or quite as tough as george rev but since i have got flat feet i'm not gone with the draft i used to envy the fellows who had such a fine physique but all they can say is hello on 7.50 a week. When the boys get back and see how I'm doing, they'll be sorry they laugh. Cause one can't keep on wooing and still be gone with the draft. When Franklin D did sign the draft, the cats all had a chill. The boys turned pale and ceased to laugh cause this is a serious bill. They now realize that skinny me was the luckiest one of all. 
We can stay at home with many while they face the cannonball. So boys, take it on the chin and always wear a smile. You'll find it hard to grin carrying 50 pounds for miles. When your year of drill is up, you get your camps released. You can come back home and freshen up with the gals, your job in peace. Gone with the draft. Look what the man has done to you. Gone with the draft. What in the world is there to do? And when the boys get back and see how I'm doing, they'll be sorry they laugh. Cause one can't keep on wooing and still be going with a draft, 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 draft. And that brings it to the, us to the end of today's show. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Charlie Morrow, the composer of the theme music that we are uh, playing right now, uh, will talk about his new work, the Book of Numbers and Spells, and the variety of interesting projects he's been involved in. We, we will see you then. Thank mm-hmm. you.